I have given the title of Pawns and Kings to this podcast. It seemed fitting. It has something to do with what I'm going to talk about. And it is a reference to a book and then film called The Count of Monte Cristo. Somebody I had met earlier this week had told me that Carl's story reminded them of the Count of Monte Cristo. Um, Edmund was uh, put into prison for the remaining years of his life when he was a very young man. And he had not committed a crime, but he had been a witness to events that put people who had positions of authority um, in jeopardy. And so to um, protect them, they placed him in prison for the rest of his life with the idea that he would likely die in prison. And that is similar to Carl's story. Carl grew up in Traver, California, even though he was born in Vancouver, Washington. He was put into a foster family at the age of 11 and I believe that he might have thought that the foster family was some relation of his, a blood relation, but on further research, I found out that the family that he lived with was truly just a foster family and that he was not a blood relation to that family. And Traver was a rough town. It was a small town and it was in an agricultural community. I had spoken to a former family member who had been who had married into Carl's foster family. And so he knew quite a bit about Traver and he told me that or he referred to Traver as uh, the Traver Mafia. And he was kidding, but I believe that there might have been some truth to that. And exactly what I mean by that, um, I'll leave it up to those who want to do a little bit more research, but I think that there could be some truth to his, to his joke. So Carl lived in Traver, and when Carl was 14, he developed friendships that got him into trouble, and he ended up in a youth correctional facility called Preston. The full name was Preston School of Industry. It seemed that all of the youth correctional facilities had some school title associated with them, and, um, and they were kind of strange. Um, all spoke of industry or industrial revolution on some level. But Preston had been around for quite some time and the building that housed Preston was this very odd castle-like structure. It had been built sometime in the late 1800s and it had been operating for quite some time. It was in Ione, California and curious why Carl was sent so far away, um, but that's where he was sent. Preston had once been 
um, home to Neil Cassidy about 20 years earlier. And Neil Cassidy was part of the Beat Generation and a friend of and colleague of Allen Ginsberg, the poet Allen Ginsberg, if anybody remembers. And the encyclopedia entry says that Neil Cassidy acquired his love of literature at Preston. I found that interesting because it was at Preston where Carl began to write at the age of 14 and began to keep diaries. But Preston was a violent place and a number of wards, they called the kids wards, a number of the wards met early deaths, sometimes at the hands of other kids, sometimes at the hands of guards. It's kind of mixed up and hard to say exactly, and, um, and certainly there's not much of a record of exactly what happened to those who died or those who were raped, or those who were beaten. So it was a violent place, and that's where Carl found himself at the age of 14. And 54 miles away, there was another youth correctional facility, and it was called Duell Vocational Institute. And I'll be referring to it as um, DVI. And it was in uh, Tracy, California. Again, that was uh, 54 miles away from Preston. And it too was a very violent place. Those who were able to survive had very close bonds with each other. And there were two young men who were in DVI. I'll call one of them Artie. That's his first name. And the other one, Larry. And I'm not going to give you their last names right now because I haven't spoken to Artie yet and I don't want to give his full name until I have a chance to speak with him, if I ever get a chance to speak with him. So um, Artie and Carl have quite a bit in common, which I was surprised to find out. So they're about the same age. And um, as I mentioned before, Carl was recruited from Preston when he was 16 years old, so he'd been in Preston for two years, for mercenary fighting in Vietnam and Guatemala. And as I've said before, this was sort of a forced recruitment. It wasn't something that he would have been able to choose based on an informed decision because he was only 16 years old and because his alternative was no alternative, no alternative at all, because it was a dangerous and frightening environment, and his and he was not even yet fully an adult, and he didn't have family support who could offer him an alternative. So really, um, I'm sure the way it was presented made it sound like it was better than what he was experiencing. Whether or not that was ethical or not, to present him with that opportunity is something that I think needs to be considered, but that's how it worked. And Artie, 54 miles away at the same time, 
was also given a similar opportunity to fight as a mercenary. This fighting, this mercenary fighting, I've started to refer to it as uh, dark pool fighting, meaning it was done outside congressional oversight, so it was illegal. I am told that it's gone on for hundreds of years. It will continue to go on, and nobody will ever stop it, that it's part of war. So anyway, but I guess we should all be aware that it, laws are broken and it, and this kind of fighting goes on, and we shouldn't be naive. But anyway, um, so Artie was recruited as a mercenary, so that's, uh, that's another confirmation. And Carl was recruited as a mercenary. Um, tr uh, Tracy, California is also an agricultural area in California. If Artie and Carl were going to be going off and fighting as mercenaries, they were going to have to receive some kind of training. I think that is to be assumed. And one can only imagine the kind of training that they received at the age of 16 for to prepare them for that kind of fighting. There is some record of that kind of training, and I've been looking into that, but I can't really talk fully about that right now. So there's another um, connection between Artie and Carl. Um, besides their California experiences and it's a little bit complicated so I'm going to try to describe it as simply as possible. Um, in the early 1970s there was something called uh, the food co-op wars. Food co-ops are, um, as you can imagine, um, where a group of people, mostly young people in this case, um, got together and tried to figure out how to provide healthy local food for the population, do it under a co-op structure so it would be cost-effective. And this became very popular. And there were a couple of centers of these food co-ops. One was in San Francisco and another one was in the Midwest, in the Minneapolis area. And these food co-ops, because of their popularity, if you can imagine, they probably started to make the corporations who oversaw food distribution in the United States a little nervous. Might that, you know, maybe in the future it might get into their profits. Now, nothing was ever said about this, but there were some events that happened that if you reflect upon them, you might see some motive, possible motive, um, possible reason why they might not like the food co-ops and why they, why they might want something to occur to cause their demise. So about the time the food co-ops were starting to really get going and really thriving, um, a couple of strange organizations um, developed, just sort of popped onto the scene. And one of those was in the California area in, in Humboldt County, and it was called Tribal Thumb. And the one in the Midwest was very similar in structure, 
and it was called CO, two initials, CO. And um, both had an ideology that was aligned with communism, a kind of vocalization of communism, but the actual functioning of the organizations really didn't have much to do with communism. And this seemed to be the case with a lot of organizations that popped up like that during the early 1970s. So uh, Tribal Thumb and the CO had leaders, and um, both leaders were former inmates who all of a sudden developed an interest in food distribution in the co-op world. And very interesting people, if you look at their backgrounds, had nothing to do with food co-ops or communism or anything to do with any of the interests that they, they seemed to espouse once they became the leaders of these groups. So um, Tribal Thumb um, had a couple of people who were members who were familiar with. So Artie from DVI and his friend Larry, also from DVI, were part of Tribal Thumb. Larry also had a history as being a member of the Manson family. And Tribal Thumb also had ties to the Symbionese Liberation Army, the SLA, um, if anyone is familiar with that group. They're the group that uh, allegedly kidnapped Patty Hearst in the 70s. Um, so that group had ties to the to this strange tribal thumb organization. I just wanted to sort of lay that out because it's just a stra really strange history. Um, when I first learned about it, I was I could hardly understand what this had to do with anything. So I could understand if it seems like that to you <laughs> as well. So anyway, these organizations used force and threats of violence to try to intimidate the co-ops into handing over their governing power to these groups. So Tribal Thumb wanted control of the co-ops in the main co-ops in California, and uh, the CEO wanted control of the the main co-op in uh, in Minneapolis. And a lot of this was a PR thing too, where you know if it seemed like the the co-ops were dangerous and full of you know potential murderers and who knows what else, that it would keep people away from wanting to um, even um, purchase their groceries at these places. So again, just to reiterate, Artie was a mercenary and then, and he had come from a youth correctional facility very close to where Carl had spent his time at a youth correctional facility. And Carl was also a mercenary. And then Artie and his other friend from from the from DVI, Youth Correctional Facility, start activities um, at Travel Thumb. Well, at some point Artie decides to go north 
um, from California and head across the border to Canada and start a commune perhaps with his wife. And so he heads north and as he's about to cross the border, um, he's questioned and in a instinctual response, this is his wife um, described it as just a very reflex-driven response. It seems completely unpremeditated. He shoots and kills um, the crossing patrol person. It completely surprises his wife. Um, seems uncalled for and just very strange, like a reflex action. Um, this brings him down to the Seattle area where he's put in jail in King County to await trial for the murder of, of that man. And while he's in jail, this is 1979, while he's in jail, um, the other man from DVI was now down in Humboldt County and with the tribal thumb people. He and a friend drive up in their Mustangs, um, I guess they were similar Mustangs, to um, Seattle. And they have a plan to break Artie out of King County Jail before he's headed off to a federal prison. But the plan fails, and um, Larry is also um, put in prison along with Artie um, because a policeman is shot, I believe, if I can remember correctly. And so um, Artie and, and Larry are heading off to prison. In 1979, Carl was already in prison in Walla Walla. He'd been in prison since 1974 in January, right? And, um, he had been in jail, headed to prison since uh, November 1973. And so he, you know, he wasn't in King County Jail then, but he was in, in jail. He was in prison in Walla Walla. So I called Larry. Um, somebody had told me that it might be good to talk to him, that he was in prison at the same time as Carl. And I looked into it, and it did appear that Larry was in prison the last year of Carl's life. So he was in Walla Walla the last year of Carl's life, because Carl was killed September 5th, 81. And I believe that, uh, and then he was in, just before that, he had been in uh, San Quentin. So he'd only been back to Walla Walla for a few months, maybe a year, um, when Larry appeared in Walla Walla as well. But I thought, you know, I always like to talk to people who maybe knew Carl when he was in prison. So I talked to him. And um, he had nothing to say about Carl 
that um, seemed supportive or really even accurate, so it was kind of strange. But he did tell me that Carl said he was afraid of him. So Larry felt that Carl was afraid of Larry. And um, Carl's history in prison is one of not being afraid, of basically being a problem because he wasn't afraid, because he would stand up and fight for almost anybody who he felt was getting the short end of the stick. So um, the to hear that uh, he was afraid of somebody um, just was really perplexing. Now, true, Larry had been part of the Manson family. So Carl had been in, you know, San Quentin. He'd been dealing with gangs, gang leaders. He had been through hell in Walla Walla. I really, and he had been a mercenary, so I had a sort of difficult time with the idea that somehow Carl would feel afraid of this guy named Larry. So, um, but anyway, that's what he told me. And what, what I took note of was just that Larry was not feeling too supportive of Carl. Well, then I found out that, you know, they had this, there was this history. Um, Larry and Artie were part of the Tribal Thong group, and they were also um, former wards in DVI in an area not too far away from Preston. Carl had been in Preston. Artie and Carl had both been mercenaries. And one thing that did come to mind was I wondered if maybe Artie and Carl had fought together. Maybe there was some bad blood between them. Maybe they had a bad experience. Maybe Carl was gonna talk about his experience as a mercenary and maybe um, Artie didn't want that to happen. And there were lots of crossovers. Well then, something strange happened in that um, I found a reference that Carl had written something while he was working on the Anarchist Black Dragon in support of the co-op in the Midwest that was under siege by the CO. So Carl took a protective position against the predatory organization, the CO, which was like Tribal Thumb, and that added another layer because this means that Carl is now aware of the food co-op wars and he's taking a position that's on the opposite side of what Tribal Thumb would have um, been on. So even though this was the CO in the Midwest co-op, it's still um, Strategically, it's Carl was taking the opposite position. So he was supporting the independent individuals who were trying to keep their food co-op going. And he was fighting against an organized group of people that popped up out of nowhere who were trying to disrupt the food co-op. And again, this put him sort of in, the, in an, an opposing position to Artie and Larry and their position with Tribal Thumb. So it was just, it was another layer of opposition between 
Larry and Artie and Carl. I don't know if um, if it's meaningful in that sense, but um, I don't know if they have other history. But I think it's worth considering. Another thing to think about is that the tribal thumb, which was um, Artie and Larry's group, Larry's allegedly the former Manson family member, is also, um, again, part of the SLA, as I said. And um, the SLA did have ties to the food co-ops in the California area. Um, that was um, that was one of their requirements um, for releasing Patty Harris was to deliver food to the food co-ops in a particular way. And I read another article where Patty Hearst had allegedly visited food co-ops regularly. So there were a number of things that tied the SLA and Patty Hearst to the food co-ops. And so that allegedly tied the food co-ops, the SLA, and Travel Thumb together. Um, this is what I've, I've read from the research of others. And I did talk to some people who were part of the CO. He said it was uh, had a cult-like feel to it, and um, they were very grateful to get away from it after years of uh, living under that structure. So um, I think that you can probably assume that the at Travel Thumb had some similarities, but I, I don't know that for sure. So let me bring this back into the idea of um, pawns, pawns and kings. I'm thinking that Artie and Carl were pawns. I can't really say that about Larry yet, but that could also be the case. Um, I don't have enough information to say that. But I believe that putting 16-year-old kids in a position where they have to choose between a violent environment in which their life is threatened on a daily basis or being given advanced training to go off and be a mercenary in foreign lands. It's not ethical and it's illegal because mercenary fighting is illegal. And to force 16-year-old boys into a position of participating in an illegal activity when they're already serving a sentence for alleged crimes is absurd. And beyond being absurd, what was the outcome of that choice? What good did it, did it provide to the community? If it was our government who was arranging for this kind of recruitment, what good came out of it? How were we served? How were those boys served? Well, clearly those boys weren't served very well. We have 
Carl, who after he was a mercenary, became falsely targeted as a shooter for one of the first sniper crimes where a high-powered rifle was used to shoot into a random crowd. And then he was placed in jail for 95 years on very sketchy evidence. We have Artie, who likely reacted with a sort of reflex react response to the um, Border Patrol person because of his mercenary training. So we have multiple deaths and the generation of fear in the population as a result of drawing these kids into mercenary fighting. So that doesn't seem like a very productive outcome for a program where 16-year-olds are recruited and trained, drawn from youth correctional facilities, kids from poor families. So it seems to me, though, that they were serving someone in authority. So they were pawns and they were serving kings. And there's either pawns or kings, as Napoleon would say.